0: The following content is brought to you as part of our Equipped Study Series at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County. In this six-week study, we will be looking at how Jesus prayed, how He taught us to pray, and put it into action as we pray together weekly. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome. Uh, good to see everybody, uh, even though y'all are so far away. I promise that i'm not sick or i can't promise you my breath smells good but it did this morning when i brushed my teeth um come on in (laughs) um yeah so tonight we are moving along and um the first week if you'll remember we we talked about the challenges of praying and why prayer can be difficult, particularly looking at two sets of challenges. The first set of challenges is how prayer is difficult just for human beings in every age. But then we also talked about unique difficulties that we face as as living in in the modern age that we live in. Um, and so that was week one. And then last week we looked at the praying king, the example of Jesus, Jesus's prayer life and what Luke was trying to teach us in his depiction of Jesus's prayer life and his reporting on Jesus's prayer life. And we saw that prayer was key to keeping Jesus focused on his mission, keeping Jesus focused on the cross uh orienting his life towards the the calling that the Father had given him. Uh, we also saw that prayer was the instrument through which the Holy Spirit would come upon Jesus uh, at various times uh and and fill him in his ministry. Uh and then we also saw just that he he had a habit of prayer. And Luke points that out with the language that he used that. You know Jesus would go up on the mountain, as was his custom, and Jesus would would withdraw to the desolate places. And so you see these descriptions, and it's clear that this was something that Jesus was doing. So tonight um, we are going to look at the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke on prayer. So. What does G, What does Jesus teach about prayer? So again, not his example, but his actual words on it, and so that's that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, and then, just for reference point, where we're going. Um, and then next week, we will look. We will turn to the book of Acts, and we will see how this same emphasis on prayer carries over after Jesus's ascension. And we are, as people filled with the Spirit, we are to continue in the same way. Um, So let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you. I thank you for each person who's here tonight, Lord, and I just pray that you would lead us and guide us, and Lord, just grant us mercy tonight, and grant us knowledge, Lord, to know your will, and And Lord, to desire the right things. Lord, I pray that you would orient our hearts uh, towards you. Um, Lord, that we would approve of the things that you approve of. And Lord, that we would disavow the things that you hate. Um, And Lord, I pray that we would be drawn to Jesus tonight. Lord, I pray that uh, the teachings of our Lord on prayer. Would motivate us, would invite us, would um, spur us on, would encourage us, Lord, to seek to pray, to have habits like He had. Um, Lord, I I pray that we would be a praying church. Lord, that we would be a praying church when we gather together. Uh, Lord, that we would be a praying church when we're at home by ourselves or with our families. Well, um, I just pray, uh, Lord. I know that that you accomplish your will through through the means of your people praying. And Lord, we want we want to experience the full blessing of being praying people and being a part of the mission you've called us to. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so I guess before we jump in, I, I'm I want to just ask kind of a not an off-topic question, but it's a question that has to do with our why we're doing it the way we're doing it. We could, we could scour all four Gospels and come up with more material on prayer than what we're doing, right? Because I'm, I'm focusing exclusively on Luke and Acts. Now, if you didn't know this, Acts was also written by Luke. So we're focusing on the authorship of Luke. What is the advantage of that? Is there an advantage to that? Why would we just focus on Luke? Why wouldn't we also incorporate Matthew, Mark, and John? What what can we gain from just focusing on Luke? Okay? So we have specific details that Luke includes. Can you think of other reasons? Okay. Yeah. Which again is I think feeding into the that point that as a Gentile um or writing with Gentiles in mind. <laughs> he he is absolutely going to emphasize things, explain things with that purpose in mind. Any other reasons? Well, let me ask you this would you call the gospel's history? I mean, is that what we are? Is that what we're dealing with? We have history being written. And so it makes sense if you're going to study history to get all the sources, right? Why why would you, why would you study World War II and only look at one person's depiction of it? Like, wouldn't you want as many sources as you could get? Because that would give you a fuller picture. Is it history? Okay. Is it strictly history? See, I think this is a really important question. Because, like, first of all, we acknowledge that God gave us four gospels, not one, right? So there's a reason for that. So I do think it's valuable to accumulate all the teachings. And, and kind of put them side by side, and, and and see what the unified voices have to say. I do think that's valuable, but I also think it's valuable to step to step back and, and narrow the gaze and focus only on one or the other too. And the reason I think it's valuable is because I I think that each gospel writer, when you say, are they writing history? you kind of have to nuance that a little bit because the way we think about history is not the same way they, think, they thought about history. When we think about history, we only think about ordering the events as accurately as possible and telling, telling the story exactly as it happened. Well, we've got a big problem if that's, what, if that's what constitutes true history in the Gospels because all of these things happen in different orders in all four Gospels. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we've got the Sermon on the Mount at at a different place in Luke's Gospel than we do in Matthew's Gospel. Different stages. It's not organized the same way. So does that mean that one of them's wrong and one of them's right? We have Luke's um, Lord's Prayer, and we're going to notice tonight that it doesn't include everything Matthew's includes. There's parts of it left out. Is that a problem? (laughs) I think it's important that we recognize that these writers are also theologians, and they're making theological points in the very ordering of their accounts. And so think about it this way. You're Luke, and you sit down and you collect all the material, okay? You get this story and you get this story and you go and talk to this eyewitness. And Luke probably had access to Mark's gospel already. And so Luke takes Mark's gospel. He says, I'm gonna start here. This is a, a source. He Luke knew Paul, he knew Peter, he knew these apostles, he's talking to them. He goes and talks to the people that got healed. And he says, Hey, tell me what it was like. And and he gathers all these sources. And then he sits down and he begins organizing it and writing it, but he's not trying to write it necessarily in order. He begins by asking the question, what do I want to emphasize when I put all this together? What do I want to teach the church? What do I want the people of God to know? And I'm going to organize this material in such a way that that these theological points get emphasis and all of the gospel writers did this. I mean John organizes his material around the signs, the seven signs and the I am statements that we've been we looked at. Luke of all four makes Jesus' teachings on prayer more central. And so I think it's valuable to examine just Luke's teaching on prayer so that we can see the way he fits prayer into the context of the story that he's specifically telling and how it relates to all the different theological points that he's making. There's five different sections of teaching material in Luke's Gospel from Jesus on prayer. So five different times Jesus teaches on prayer in the gospel of Luke. And what's fascinating about it is if you put all five of them together, what you end up with is a complete full theology of prayer. In those five teachings, we find out what what to pray, we find out how to pray, and we find out why we should pray. All of that's there. And so that's the outline that we're going to follow. We're not going to go in order tonight. We're going to go with this outline. First, what's the content of prayer? Second, what's the manner of prayer? How do we pray? Third, what's the purpose of prayer? Why do we pray? Luke answers all of those questions Jesus answers all of those questions, and Luke reports that very clearly in his gospel. And so the first thing that we're going to look at is the content of prayer. So if you have a Bible, uh, if you don't, there's one in the seat in front of you. You can open to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. Anybody want to read this for us? Luke 11, 1 through 4. It's not many, not many verses. Hannah? He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, he said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, This is John Alfred's disciples. He said to them, Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored and holy, your kingdom come. Give us each our daily bread, we forgive us our sins. All right, what's missing? How many, I mean, let's just start with this question. I assume several of you know the Lord's Prayer by heart. Is this what you know? So which version do you know then? Do you know which one you know? Whose gospel is the one you know? It would be Matthew's. So you, you don't learn Luke's. And there's a reason for that, because Matthew's has more in it. So, I mean, it's logical. If you're going to learn one, let's learn one that or reports the most of it. This is like Luke's abbreviated version. <laughs> so maybe Luke's source, because Luke wasn't there, probably. I mean, Luke wasn't there. So, I mean, Luke probably is talking to someone, and they reported what they remembered of the prayer. And Matthew talked to Peter, probably. That's his source. Peter probably remembered the whole thing. And so we get two different versions. What what elements are missing? Can you can you think of any? All right. Who art in heaven? What else? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What else? Deliver us from evil. Yeah, which that's disputed, that part, whether that was in, in there anyway. Um, also, I, which I think this is important, Matthew begins with our Father, not just Father. So it does seem like Matthew specifically has the community praying it in mind, right? And he makes that very explicit, our Father, instead of you know father which would be more individual. So yeah, those parts are there and it makes sense, right? Luke wasn't there. His account is based on eyewitness testimony, but it's amazing there's so much similarity and overlap that it validates it, right? I mean, if let's just put it this way, if if you saw a car accident out here, so there's car accidents. This is a crazy little place to drive. So And two people saw it, and the cop asked each one what happened. You know, one person may give him ten details, and the other person may give him six details. And are both of those accounts true? Yeah, right? So that's what we have happening in the Gospels. And it's important, because the intro to this is important. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. One one of the other things that we often don't acknowledge about the Gospels is that Jesus probably taught these things more than once, right? I mean, how many times have you heard me teach the same thing again and again and again? Some of you are like, "Oh my word, here he goes again on that thing." You know, like whatever it is. Like you, you know, there's certain things I get really fired up about. You know, and there may be at certain times you're just tired of hearing it. That's okay. I mean, you can admit it. I know it's fine. But I'm gonna keep saying it as long as I'm fired up about it, because the Holy Spirit told me to. So there. But you know, here. You know, that's probably happening in Jesus' life too, right? You have a three-year ministry. You better believe that that some of these teachings are being repeated. And so that may explain some of the differences in some of the accounts as well. Um, And so this is an answer to them requesting, Lord, teach us to pray, As John taught his disciples, I wonder how John taught his disciples. We don't don't have access to that, but clearly John taught his disciples to pray, and they want Jesus to do the same thing, and Jesus obliges. Jesus says, okay, I will. And so he gives us this model prayer, and I just want you to think about what a precious gift it is to have this prayer because i don't know about you but this sentiment of not knowing what to pray and wanting to learn how to pray is one that i've experienced personally right and and when when i think that on my best days i go oh yeah jesus told me what to pray so maybe i don't know what to pray right now But I'm going to open, and I would probably open to Matthew 6. I'm going to open to Matthew 6, and and I'm going to pray the way Jesus told me to. Because this is the prayer that He gave His people for us to give. This is the way Jesus modeled prayer for us. So whether you're just too distracted and you can't focus, this is a great prayer to focus on. Or whether you just don't know how to pray, this is a great prayer for you to focus on. And guess what? You can pray it verbatim. You can just pray these words, Father, Hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't ever think that that's like not an, a legitimate form of prayer. You know, we have this mentality that everything has to be free flowing, and that's not necessarily the case. And obviously, we don't want to be a people who just rely on form and there's no heart behind it. But the the ideal is that sometimes we use the form and we put our heart behind it, right? Or you can do it like jazz riff style. Any of you you don't know what that's like, Jess? I'm not an instrument I'm not I'm not a, a musician, but I like jazz a lot. And jazz has like kind of a form, you know, like you've got the beat and the bass line and the drum, and they'll usually they'll be pretty consistent so that the other instruments can kind of fill it in, but they're improving. And the Lord's Prayer is a great baseline for your prayers, right? The Lord's Prayer is the beat and the bass. And so you kind of pray it, but you riff off of it. You see, you say something like, hey, Father, hallowed be your name. God, we just want to see your name exalted. I pray that my neighbors would know who you are. You're praying, hallowed be your name, but you're you're riffing off of that. You're expanding it. And that's a great way to pray the Lord's Prayer too, right? And so you can use this as a form without just verbatim, verbatimly, maybe? No, I don't know, but it'll work tonight. Verbatimly repeating it. You can also sort of venture off of it and let it guide you and come back to it and go out and come back and go out and come back. So, So that's a way to do it. So let's talk about the content real quick couple observations number 1 it is grounded in intimate relationship with the father notice that father every time jesus prays this is how it starts father it says father and jesus is inviting us to pray like that and you know we we talked about this last week so i'm not going to get into it again but we this is the this is theology of adoption we've been invited into this relationship between the Father and the Son. We're sons too, and we can call upon God as our Father. Notice in Luke's version, there's two Godward petitions and there's three kind of earthward petitions, right? So the, the two towards God, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and then sort of manward or, or horizontal request. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins will be the second one. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That's an important emphasis that Jesus often taught on. The the, the connection between being forgiven by God and, and forgiving others. This is why someone offends you and you're a believer in Christ and that person comes to you for forgiveness and repentance, you don't have a choice. (laughs) The gospel mandates us to joyfully forgive people who have offended us. Um, And so, um, but let's talk a little bit, and then the, the, I don't want to skip, and then the last one is lead us not into temptation. Uh, And so I want to, we could talk talk about all these, but I want to specifically talk about your kingdom come for a moment because this one is a really important one in the context of Luke, the kingdom of God. What is that? I mean, when you think of the kingdom of God, what do you think of? Heaven? Heaven? Yeah, and Matthew even calls it at times the kingdom of heaven. So, sometimes it's the kingdom of God, sometimes it's the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew, not in Luke. It's the kingdom, or the kingdom of God. What else? Is that it? Okay? So, Adding to Jim, heaven coming down, right? Christ reigning all things made new on the earth. So let me ask you this. When is the kingdom? Past, present, or future? Future? Trick question. Well, Jesus says when he comes, what does Jesus say? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is where? At hand. That's the first thing Jesus begins teaching, meaning I'm here and the kingdom's here. In Luke's theology, Pentecost is another manifestation of the kingdom when believers receive the Holy Spirit. So, where the Holy Spirit is, there the kingdom is. So, where Jesus is, there the kingdom is. Where the Holy Spirit is, there the kingdom is. Where's the Holy Spirit? Yeah, and Luke, Luke has this amazing passage. we are not going to look at it where he talks about the kingdom of God is, is within you. <laughs> There's some translation dispute on it, but I think that's what he says. I mean, the Holy Spirit is within us when the church gathers on a Sunday. I I know I've told you all this before, but I want you to imagine the church is like an embassy of the kingdom. Right? The, the church is the people of God gathered. And just like you know, the United States may send a representative to another country and there's an embassy there, the territory of that embassy is the United States, right? What happens in that embassy? That embassy is ruled by United States laws, even though it's in the territory of another c- country. It's the way embassies work. So the church, when the people of God gather, we are an embassy of the kingdom of Christ. So we, we're geographically, if you will, spatially located kind of within the kingdom of this world, but we represent God's kingdom. So this gets me to the other question. So we said it's, it's past, it's present, and it's also future. We're going to talk more about that. Is it an area? Is it a location? When I start talking about embassy, it kind of sounds like like it is, like it's a space, like it has borders. Is that how it is? So this is really helpful to think about this way. Because when every time we use kingdom, um when we talk about like like a Viking movie, like the one that I just went and saw last night, which don't see. It's super weird. Um, But like you go and see the, you know, you talk about a kingdom. It's a a geography, right? Like this is my kingdom. Do not come into my territory. Well, the kingdom of God will be geographical one day, right? When we talk about the glory of God covering the earth, like the, the Old Testament prophets, you know, God's glory is going to cover the geographic realm. Everybody's going to see it. It's going to be noticeable. But I think it's helpful to think about it as God's reign or his rule. So the kingdom of God is God reigning, God ruling. Where do we see God's kingdom? Where we see God reigning? Where we see God ruling? God's reigning among his people. So the kingdom of God should be very clearly manifested in the church when God's people are submitting to Him, when we are obedient to Him and we're living by faith. So when He says here, your kingdom come, what what Jesus is teaching us to pray is give us more of your reign. Lord, your kingdom come. There's a lot of things included in this. So if, if we put like a If we drew, if we said, "Your kingdom come," and we drew a line under it, what would fall under that? Like, what would be manifestations of God answering that prayer? What would you say? "Your kingdom come, God. We want Your kingdom come." So, if we see this, 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 and this, we know He's answering it. People coming to know Jesus, absolutely. What else? Truth and righteousness. Being believed and preached. What else? Jesus coming back. Absolutely. That's his kingdom coming and being consummated. No more sin. Um, healing of diseases. Justice. All of that. What about sanctification? What about the growth of God's people? What about repentance of sin? Right? What about His people praying? More people praying. Isn't that His kingdom coming too? Anything that manifests God's reign is His kingdom coming. It's really interesting. I mean, you could really trace out a lot of what He teaches he, so, flip back to chapter 10, verse 9, look at this. So, this is where Jesus sends out the 72, two by two. And in verse 9, he says, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Do you see? So, the sick are healed, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And I want you to think about that. Because when when Jesus heals the sick in his earthly ministry, what's he doing? He's showing you what his kingdom is. In Jesus' kingdom, guess what? There's not going to be any more sick people. There's not going to be any more disease. There's not going to be any more blindness. There's not going to be any more death. All those things will be overturned. So when Jesus comes and he wants to show signs to people of His future kingdom, He shows it to them in the present by healing them right then and there. This is a manifestation of His kingdom. But, you know, I asked you, is it in the past or is it in the future? Well, that's a great question. Because He also talks about it all the time as if it's not come yet. (laughs) And so... The best way I know to describe this, and y'all have heard me say it in sermons before, the best way that I've ever heard and how to, how to understand this idea is in the, the language of already and not yet. The kingdom of God has already come. The kingdom of God has not yet been consummated. Already, not yet. We live in this tension where we see the kingdom by faith, We see the kingdom when a sinner's baptized. We see the kingdom when someone repents of their sin. We see the kingdom at work in our own lives when we're sanctified. But yet it's not yet been consummated, meaning completely universally realized and recognized. It hasn't taken over everything yet. Which is what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And so when we pray, Your kingdom come, this is what we pray, guys. When you look on, when you turn on the news tonight and you see images in Ukraine and you see people, bo- dead bodies laying in streets for no apparent reason, you say, God, would your kingdom come? Would you come back and fix this mess? When you see people suffer, when you, when you suffer, when we groan and we ache because we know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we want it to be. And we have this desire to see it. We want to see it now. We know it's broken. We know that God wants to see it fixed too. And so we say, God, may your kingdom come. And then there's these Horizontal petitions. I'm going to look at these are really quick. They'll give us each day our daily bread, so daily provision. Whether you recognize it or not, Kroger and credit cards is not where your food comes from. It comes from God, right? God provides our daily bread. He provides people that do not acknowledge Him's daily bread too, right? Forgive us our sins. Again, another daily need. We are daily sinners. We need daily forgiveness. Thanks to Jesus, the cross doesn't run dry. Like There's not like a bank of forgiveness. It's not like Jesus said, well, I'm going to pay for 52 cents. I mean, that would be gone in a day. It'd be gone in, in less time than that, right? It's infinite value. His atonement makes complete forgiveness. And then lead us not into temptation. God, would you would you lead me away from the danger? Would you lead me toward the path of righteousness? Every day I need you to lead me so that I don't fall, so that I don't give in. What's Jesus doing with all of these petitions? If you took all of them together, it is simply this. Jesus is teaching us that true discipleship recognizes total dependence upon Him for everything. You want to be a faithful disciple, you figure out all and and be aware of all of the ways that you are daily dependent upon Him for every need, physical, emotional, spiritual, economical, social, whatever. Just keep adding alls they're all dependent upon him this is why it's not a bad idea to pray this prayer every day the lord's prayer is a great prayer i have a little book that i started using um it's called be thou my vision and it's a 30 day it's got 30 daily liturgies and the and so the last prayer the last thing every day is the lord's prayer it always starts with praise And it ends with the Lord's Prayer. And so that conditions me. It it sets the tone for my day that I'm needy and I'm dependent upon Him for everything. And repeating that, even that form, it shapes me in, I think, ways that I'm not even conscious of. You know? All right, so that's the, the, the what of prayer, the content of prayer. Let's talk about the manner of prayer. You don't have to turn anywhere because Jesus takes this opportunity and he immediately launches into a parable. And he says to, to in, in verse 5, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now there's two things here that I immediately rebel against when I read this. Now, the first one is don't knock on my door at midnight. First of all, I will be asleep, and you will not wake me up. The second one is, their children slept in their bed over my dead body. So, two things. It was by necessity. Right, houses back then was basically one room. You all kind of puppy piled. I, I visited someone in Peru one time, and and their family was like taking a nap. It was like four little kids, like the whole family was in the bed. And they were like, come on in. It was so weird to me, like, oh, I didn't mean to come into your bedroom, but like their bedroom was their room. It was their house. Um but that's the way they slept. So the point of the parable is not for me to get sidetracked on all those details, by the way. The point of the parable is that this is an outrageous request. And Jesus wants it to be outrageous. Like Do you have friends that would... Joe would probably do this. Joe's the type of person that would knock on my door at midnight if he needed something, I think. Just got that personality. Just just to pick on Joe, I mean, he's just not always self-aware, right? And so... You know, you, you hey man, I need I need to borrow your lawnmower, you know, or whatever, and and that's the point. Like no, Jesus wants us to go. Nobody comes to your house and asks for bread at midnight. That's ridiculous, and the, the ridiculousness of the request is essential to the point that Jesus is making because the point Jesus is making is that, and, and the word he uses here is impudence. But if you look down, maybe your Bible translates it better as persistence. I think that's a better word for what he's describing. He is persistent. And so even when you're annoyed, you're eventually going to honor the request, mainly because you just re- you're just wanting to go back to sleep. You like, yeah, just leave me alone, man. Here, have all my bread, you know? And so that's, that's the point Jesus is making. His point is that, if, if an annoyed friend will grant the request of a persistent friend knocking on his door at midnight, how much more will your heavenly father grant your persistent requests to you? Do you see? He, he makes that explicit as he keeps going when he does this beautiful poetic. I love this. This is one of my favorite things Jesus ever said. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. And then he says, listen, if you who are evil people, if you know how to give good gifts to your children... Don't you know that your father, who's sinless and perfect in every way, knows how to give good gifts to his children? So, the, the point of all of this is to encourage us to habitually ask and seek and knock in faith with confidence, knowing that God will respond. Notice that what God gives, however, might not be what you're asking for, because look, at, but, it, but it's always going to be the good thing you need. It's always better than what you're asking for. Look at what he says at the end. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Isn't that what you really need anyway? Maybe you're praying for that new Lexus. Are any of you praying for that? God knows what you need regardless of what you're praying for. Maybe you're praying for something really serious. Trust me, God knows what you need, and He's going to give it to you because He's good. This is all rooted in the goodness of God. Now, there's one other similar account. And so turn over to Luke 18. Luke 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, what a gift. How often do you read a parable and you're like, what in the world is this trying to teach me? Right? And right here at the beginning, Luke says, hey, guys, I'm going to give you like the back of the book blurb right here before the parable. So you already know what the parable is supposed to teach you so that you ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth?" So this widow is praying for justice. Now, justice against her adversary. What do you think that means? What I mean, give me an example. What kind of prayer do you think this is? First of all, she's a widow. So we know socially she's disadvantaged. She's praying to a judge, someone who oversees the law and forces it, and she's asking the judge to grant her justice against an adversary or an enemy so what's happening yeah could be which what do you mean by that Dan yeah it, it certainly implies that the person doing wrong will be dealt with appropriately. But it also, on the on the positive side, it's a request that righteousness be restored. So clearly she's being taken advantage of. So this could be anything. I mean, this could be a landowner who's overcharging her or uh, someone who's cheating her, not giving her something. Maybe a debt was owed to her dead husband and this person refuses to give her the money because her husband's no longer around. Right? Something like that. And so she keeps coming to the judge and she's asking for righteousness. Would you make it right? Would you make it the way it's supposed to be? And does the judge want to do it? I want you to remember how widows were thought of in this day and age. As Pretty much no status, right? Would you just leave me alone? I got more important business to tend to. That's probably his attitude. But the point is she keeps bothering him. She won't leave him alone. And that's the point Jesus is trying to drive home to us. The reason this unrighteous judge grants her request is because she's persistent. She won't let up. And this is another one of those, if an evil judge would eventually do the right thing, don't you know that your good God, who already loves justice more than you do, don't you know that he is going to do the right thing? So that's the point. God will hear and speedily answer the cries of his elect who are persistent and faithful. When Jesus returns at the very end, he wants to see his people faithfully praying. That's that's the point. Will he find faith on earth? Will he find this kind of faith when Jesus comes back? When Jesus returns, will he find his people persistently praying, crying out for justice? The point that's being made here is the manner. How are we supposed to pray? We're supposed to pray persistently. We're supposed to pray constantly. Luke wants us to know that prayer is a primary component of the discipleship of Christ's people between Jesus's coming and Jesus's return. As we live in between, as we're waiting for Jesus to come and consummate everything, prayer is our mode of survival. John Piper once called prayer uh, a wartime (laughs) walkie-talkie. It's just, you know, do we don't even have walkie talkies anymore. No, I mean, you'd probably have to like use your iPhone now or something, but you know, it's our communication link to our God as we are on this battlefield of this earth in this life. Okay, so we've covered the content of prayer, the manner of prayer. So, what's the content, the Lord's prayer? What's the manner? persistence, that's what keeps being driven home in Luke, persistence, what Jesus keeps calling us to. So finally, let's look at the purpose of prayer. So flip back with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And so this is back, we had already kind of alluded to this, this is back when Jesus appoints the 72 and sends them out. So we'll start in verse one. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what are we praying for here? It's a metaphor, right? This isn't a farming prayer. Though it's not a bad idea to pray for your crop. Breck, you got a crop? No. <laughs> Anybody got a crop? You got a garden? It's fine. It's good to pray for that. But that's not what he's talking about. What's he talking about? Yeah, more witnesses, because the harvest is plentiful, meaning there are many people out there ready, right? Ready to be plucked, (laughs) ready to be brought in. But we got to have people to go. We've got to have people to go tell them. We want, this is church, this is why, this very prayers why we want to send as many people out as we can that this is it we don't we don't like try to hold on to people here we're like come and we pray that god would call you and will send you go tell people because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few god intends and i want you to understand this god intends for the prayers of of His disciples to play a part in bringing His harvest to completion. Your prayers count in God's plan. So this is the purpose of prayer. And then one other passage, the the last reference, Luke 21, 36. And I'm actually going to back up to 34 so that I can get the whole paragraph here. So this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. The day he's talking about is the day of his return and judgment. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times stay awake, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man. So in this context, prayer is the means by which you stay awake. What does he mean by stay awake? another metaphor. He contrasts it with dissipation, drunkenness, and a person weighed down by the cares of this life. So contrast, drunk person, dissipated person, person weighed down by the cares of this life. Is that person thinking about the kingdom of Christ? No, it's the last thing on their mind. The only thing they're thinking about is the next thrill, the next pleasure, right? Feed me, feed my gut. Let me have fun. Let me eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. It's that mentality, right? Jesus says, His people, we don't live that way. Like we don't live for the now. We live for the future. We live in the present for the future. And how do we and and we live ready. We live lives that. We're not surprised. If Jesus comes back right now, we're not going, oh no, oh no, I didn't, I'm not ready, right? We're ready. We're ready today. Jesus is calling us here to live a life of readiness. And the way to do it, he says, is through prayer. Through prayer. Stay awake at all times, praying, praying, that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. There are things going to happen and you need to pray because if you pray, I will give you what you ask for. And if you pray for strength, I will give you the strength. This is, I will give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not named here, but certainly that's what's in mind. Prayer here connects us to the future appearance of the Son of Man. You know, when I went to Sanford University, liberal, I had liberal Bible teachers. Like, I don't even know what the point of that is. Like, if you're a liberal and you don't believe, and I mean liberal, you're all thinking like Democrat. I mean, like liberal Christian, like don't believe the Bible. Like, well, what's the point of being a Bible teacher if you don't believe it? Like, that never, that's always blown my mind. But, one of the arguments that they would always make against the Bible is they would go, it's clear that the apostles believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime and he didn't come back. So clearly they got it wrong. See, you can't believe this stuff. And, and my response was like, yeah, of course they believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. Because all of us are supposed to believe that Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime. We're supposed to live like that. That's the way Jesus taught us to live. This is not surprising. Jesus taught to always be ready. We should be ready, and they were ready. And you and I should be ready. And prayer is essential to our readiness. If you want to be ready, be ready on your knees and no. Prayer is essential for discipleship. That's Luke's whole message. Summoning it all up. Disciples of Jesus, pray. Pray persistently. Pray as the means through which the kingdom of God is accomplished. Pray to stay ready for His kingdom to come finally at the end of time. Thoughts or questions? All right, so next week, uh, we're going to turn to Acts, and then the last two weeks, we are going to pray, okay? (laughs) And so, we're going to get in groups, we're going to have, we're going to think through intentional prayer, we're going to take some of the themes that we've talked about, and we're going to apply it together as the church. Um, And so... That's that's the plan. All right. Well let me pray.